Hey, Rachel, whatever happened to the Hellions? Eh, died mostly. Aw, they were good kids. Well, I guess except for Empath. And Roulette. And maybe Tarot. Anyway, some of them were good kids. What happened? Trevor Fitzroy. Wait, the dude with the green hair from Bishop's Future? That's the one. I thought he was part of the Hellfire Club. Why'd he go after the Hellions? Dude, it's the Hellfire Club. Backstabbing is practically a membership requirement, literally in some cases. Anyway, Fitzroy was part of the Upstarts, this group of upcoming Hellfire kids who went around assassinating mutants for points. What a dick. It's not entirely his fault. He was actually a good guy originally, but he got killed in the Summer's Rebellion and then Layla Miller brought him back without a soul. Ouch. Yeah, he went super evil, infiltrated the XSE, and jumped back in time to lay general waste to the past, which was when the Hellions thing happened. How'd they end up stopping him? Well, remember Bishop's sister Shard? The one who was a hologram? Photon-based life form, thanks. And that was only after Fitzroy got her set up to be killed by Bishop in the future. Okay, so how'd she stop Fitzroy? Oh, well, she turned into pure energy and Bishop absorbed her and fired her at Fitzroy, which finally killed him. What?! I'm Rachel Edditon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 42nd episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So last week we looked at Uncanny X-Men number 193, that was the 100th issue that Chris Claremont did, and that included a character we've never previously seen in the comics, uh, that being Angelica Jones, Firestar. Now, in X-Men 193, Firestar was, along with the Hellions, on Warpath's revenge quest. Empath, who was another one of the Hellions, had been manipulating her into thinking she was in love with him. Xavier had tried to recruit her to the school. She turned him down because she felt that, you know, the Massachusetts Academy was where she belonged. and There was no one who was ever going to be kinder to her than Emma Frost, because Angelica Jones, among other things, is naive as hell. So it wasn't too long after this issue came out that Marvel put out a four-issue miniseries called Firestar, which was basically Angelica Jones' origin story, stuff that happened before X-Men 193 and after. This was not the first appearance of Angelica Jones in a Marvel property, even if it was the first one in the comics. For several years at this point, she had been a co-star on the show Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, for which she was created after the rights for the Human Torch proved unavailable. I used to watch the hell out of Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends back when I was a kid. It was on from 81 to 83, so when I was really tiny, but it ran in reruns for ages after that, which was when I watched it. I'm not going to say it's good exactly. It's really not good. But I am going to say I still love it very, very much. And if you have access to it, I think it's on Netflix in the United States and is probably available elsewhere as well. I recommend at least checking out some of the X-Men specific stuff. It's really fun. We know it's on Netflix because you made me watch a bunch of it this morning. Uh, I did, yes. We watched A Firestar is Born and we watched The X-Men Adventure. I want to talk about the show for a minute because I did not grow up on it. Actually, I didn't grow up on either of these, which you very much did. I feel like with both the things we're talking about today, you've got some nostalgia goggles that I really don't. Oh, yeah, I have some Firestar feels. And God, man, that show is just amazingly bad. <laughs> it is. Again, I didn't grow up watching cartoons. I don't have a huge frame of reference here. I assume that other things coming out around the same era were equivalently terrible. Oh, yeah. But oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, it's really entertaining. There's a scene in the second to last episode, Thunderbird just randomly turns into a fucking bear? You know, I mean, if you can have someone turn into a bear, why wouldn't you? Well, see, I would just extend that. I would say that the X-Men of Earth-1983, which is the one it's, it's based on, can all turn into bears. How much more awesome would X-Men be if they were all just sometimes bears? Oh yeah, it's like one of those Power Rangers shows where it's the Power Rangers, but they have some gimmick like trains or being samurai or something like that. In this case, it's bears. No, it's not even a gimmick. Like, it's the stories exactly as told, but sometimes the main characters are bears. I feel like you're describing a very specific portion of deviant art and or an archive of our own. So you know how Dazzler the movie kind of sucks? Uh, yes. Okay, think about how much better it would be if sometimes, for no apparent reason, Alison Blair were a grizzly bear. So she'd be Alison Bear. 
So anyway, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends was a cartoon that only once that I know of involved a bear. But uh, anyway, it ran for a few years. Like we've been saying, it's uh, not really good, but it's very much, I would say of the time in 81 to 83, like it was about roughly average for cartoons of that era. I feel so much less bad about not having grown up watching cartoons now. Believe me, when you're a very small child, you totally don't care. I was a discerning small child. I was in fact somewhat more discerning as a small child than I am now. But anyway, it's been homaged a few times in the comics. I mean, there was a one-shot a number of years ago. There was a recent issue of Amazing X-Men where the three characters teamed up, uh, Spider-Man, Iceman, and Firestar. It's never really been directly referenced, uh, except once, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, However, there are a number of little nods. Like, at one point, Firestar in one of the comics is confused briefly that Wolverine's not Australian, which is a reference to his inexplicably Australian voice actor, both in the episode of Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, where he appears, and in the failed pilot, Pride of the X-Men. It's weirdly consistent, too. I think the rest of the X-Men switch up voice actors between episodes, because they're not regularly cast. But Wolverine stays consistently Australian, for no really particularly good reason. So, let's go back a sec and talk about the premise of this show because again i've only seen a handful of episodes of this i didn't grow up watching it so they all live in an apartment together uh yeah they live in an apartment with aunt may and angelica's dog ms lion that's a really good name for a dog it is ms lion was actually in the mainstream marvel universe as one of the pet avengers i believe good for her yeah go ms lion uh, actually him technically ms-, ms lion's male in the comics that's awesome it's like mr peggy uh yes yes a cat in this our is parking a cat lot in our, no not our parking lot just a cat in our neighborhood it's anyway a really good cat he has three legs and he will totally cut you mm-hmm Okay, so they've got this great apartment that turns into a secret headquarters when you pull a trophy on the mantelpiece. And I cannot watch that sequence without thinking of the Tick live action pilot when the Tick is just going around wrecking Arthur's entire apartment trying to find the secret headquarters switch. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Tick watched this show. It's, it's really great. Like, the couch flips around, the bed flips around. Like, seriously, everything turns into giant, blinky, early 1980s machinery. And they use it for stuff occasionally, but it's really ill-defined as to what it does Almost or why they need never. it never. Like, there are a lot of, I say a lot of episodes, like I've seen more than a handful, in many of the small sampling of episodes I've seen, they'll like switch to the headquarters and they'll switch into their costumes and leave. Well, you know, you can't change into your costumes in a regular living room. That just wouldn't feel right. And their costume changes are kind of bizarre, too. Like, you talked about really liking Iceman's, and I disagree with you so profoundly because it is so deeply stupid. Oh, no, it's great. He, like, uh, shoots ice at his feet and then pulls it all the way up his body until he's a big refrigerator-sized block of ice, and then he bursts out of it and he's in his ice form. It's great. What happens to his khakis and sweater? Don't also, worry that about doesn't them. make any sense. It doesn't need to make sense if it's awesome. Anyway, uh, the show went on for three years, and the only time the characters have directly appeared in comics, aside from his Lion, like we mentioned, is when uh, recently the Spider-Man villain Morlin was going through Dimensions killing Spider-Man characters, and he actually killed them all. The Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends version of the characters are now officially canonically dead. That's so sad. It is sad, I agree. At Maybe- least Ms. Lion survived to avenge them. So, uh, as far as Firestar the character in general, let's talk a little bit about her and what she's been up to more recently, and then we'll dive back into her origin story. Well, she's a lot darker in the comics than she is in the cartoon, that's for damn sure. Well, everything is. My introduction to her came from the comics, and I didn't realize that the cartoon predated them. So when I saw the Firestar origin episode of the cartoon, I was like, oh man, they totally like cleaned it up for TV. But no, no, they went back in the comics and made her dark and gritty. So what we see after the miniseries, after her origin is a character who you would think, since she got her own miniseries, would stick around. She actually doesn't really do much of anything for years and years and years, but eventually she does spend a lot of time on the New Warriors and uh, later on the Avengers, both times mostly with a character uh, named Vance Astro that she was romantically involved with and at one point engaged to. What we also saw was that at one point, uh, actually a couple of points, Angelica got cancer, because apparently, unlike most mutants, she's not immune to her own power. And since oh, her that powers, sucks so bad. Yeah, since her power is microwave-based, it gave her cancer. The main 
series I remember that coming up in is the brief and ill-fated Marvel Divas of, I believe, 2008. This is the series whose author promised us, and I quote, Sudsy fun. Sudsy fun as in soap opera or as in they take baths a lot? I don't know. It got pitched as Sex in the City in the Marvel Universe. Let me me actually just read this quote because it is amazing. The idea behind the series was to have some sudsy fun and lift the curtain a bit and take a peep at some of our more fabulous superheroines. In this series, there are an unlikely foursome of friends, Black Cat, Hellcat, Firestar, and Photon, with two things in common. They're all leading double lives, and they're all having romantic trouble. Hmm. The pitch started as Sex in the City in the Marvel Universe, and there's definitely that naughty element to it. But I also think the series is going to a deeper place, asking questions about what it means, truly means, to be a woman in an industry dominated by testosterone and guns. And I mean both the superhero industry and the comic book industry. Is dominated but mostly, by guns? But mostly it's just a lot of hot fun. I do not speak for women as a demographic unit. No one does. There may be a woman out there who has always wanted to read comics And nothing has ever quite grabbed her. And there is a Marvel Divas-shaped hole in her life. And all she really wants is for a bunch of superheroes to sit down and talk about suds and boys. And (laughs) So I was hanging out with some suds and some boys showed up and they fought the suds. It was weird. God, and it's such a good cast. I feel like this is something that Marvel has done again and again and again, which is to start with a premise that could be okay and then just shoot themselves in the foot with their solicitation and marketing. Yeah, it is unfortunate because, you know, Sex in the City with a bunch of superheroes, that's actually kind of a great premise. Like, I would love to see that and I'd love to see it done well. But what's being described here, now I haven't read it myself, so I don't know how it turned out. But what's being described here does not sound like what I would want to see. I read an issue and it was okay. It's about a group of women who are friends and do stuff. I think it's got the flaw that a lot of stuff built from that premise and written by dudes does, which is a very, very narrow, like, birth control pill commercial based idea of what women talk about when they go out superhero sitcoms work like they're really they're fun a lot of x factors that um i mentioned the tick live action series which is basically seinfeld with superheroes Mm -hmm. but better everything about how this series was presented and marketed was so tremendously unappealing i think i borrowed an issue from someone because i didn't want to actually buy it because i was so just aghast at the general presentation but you know what was kind of great for some values of great the firestar limited series from 1985 Oh my god. So this Are was, we going there? We are absolutely going there. In All fact, right, let's go there. Yes. Let's blow up a pony. Oh, geez. So this was written by Tom DeFalco, and he's best known for Spider-Man, writing Spider-Man for a very long time, and for being Marvel's editor-in-chief uh, from 87 to 94. He also was part of uh, G.I. Joe's relaunch and Transformers' introduction to the States, and uh, he created and wrote Spider-Girl, which was a very beloved, if not well-read character from a number of years ago. Wasn't that Marvel's longest-running female-fronted solo title? I'm not actually sure about that. It was definitely up there. The art was actually done by a woman named Mary Wilshire, who started an underground comic. Um, she was best known for drawing Red Sonia for a very long time. She's done a fair bit of work in the comics industry. Fun fact, she also designed the Blues Brothers logo. So, yeah, this miniseries, uh, it takes place over the course of a number of years. Basically, it spans Uncanny X-Men 193. The first couple issues take place before that, and the last couple after it. So, have you ever read the novel Jude the Obscure? No, but you told me a lot about it. Okay, it's by Thomas Hardy, which means it's about a well-meaning person to whom a lot of really horrifically bad things happen nonstop. And I sort of think of the Firestar miniseries as the Jude the Obscure of superhero comics. It kind of 
of is. Some truly terrible shit happens to her, and almost all of it is because Emma Frost, at this point in Marvel continuity, is a terrible, terrible person. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, so let's start with Angelica Jones and her origin. Angelica is a high school girl, she's maybe like 14 or 15. Uh, when the series starts, I think so. Uh, who lives at home with her father and her loving grandmother, who tells Angelica that she is special and destined for great things because the lines on her hand form an M. And, you know, on the one hand, it's really sweet, and Angelica feels uh, very special because of this, and, you know, it just brightens her days. On the other hand, I feel like this is the kind of thing you would get teased by bringing for show and tell at, like, age six. And the fact that Angelica so wholeheartedly embraces it in her early teens is a little alarming. It's true, and I mean, that's something we will see for the entire series, is that Angelica is really naive and comes off in some ways as a lot younger than she actually is. Part of this is that she's had this sort of protected childhood. She's moved around a lot. She hasn't really made a lot of friends. And she has this grandmother who, you know, really dotes on her and tells her that she's special because she has an M on her hand. And presumably for other reasons as well. No, it's really just that. Just that, okay. Just that. It's, it, well, that's the proof. <laughs> One thing that is consistent between the comic and the TV series, and I should say that in the TV series, her origin episode, A Firestar is Born, which is a great title, is written by Christy Marks, the creator of Gem and the Holograms. And, and also features the most dedicated bully of all time. There's this girl named Bonnie who dedicates, like, seriously a decade to making fun of Angelica. She keeps calling her Miss Angelica Jinx. Oh my god, there's an episode much, much later where someone from Angelica's past comes back and tries to kill her, like, does evil cyborg and i was so convinced it was going to be bonnie but it wasn't <laughs> oh, which well. was really disappointing because that would have been awesome yep her peers are almost universally horrible in the comics she's got this group of mean girls whose names i didn't even bother writing down because they're so much of the generic group of mean girls right they're like the mean girl unit they're just different appendages of the mean girl species who dedicate their lives to making angelica miserable despite her insistence that she is in fact a good person and special because of the m on her hand which oh my god honey poor kid Every decision that anyone makes in this series is just kind of painful to watch. It's like if the Coen brothers did YA. Holy crap. Now I really want to read slash see that. And I think that's something that's actually worth mentioning, which is that um, this is very much a YA comic. In fact, it was repackaged a number of years ago in that sort of a manga size. A lot of kids at the time were buying manga, and it seemed like a pretty sure bet to have a comic like this directed at that age group. And I imagine that a number of those kids were baffled and somewhat disappointed when they opened the comic and discovered that it was absolutely not manga. I do know that I read it when I was probably about, I don't know, 10 years old or so, and I was super into it. I read the series a number of times. So this is ostensibly an X-Men comic. Like, you know, Firestar won't actually join the X-Men until comparatively recently with the launch of the recent run of Amazing X-Men, but she was originally positioned very much as an X-Men character. Well, and she's kind of the inverse Kitty Pride because she's the student who both the X-Men and the White Queen went after, and this time the White Queen got there first. And that's really what the first issue is about, is her sort of uh, gradually realizing she has these abilities. Yes, the ice sculpture contest is absolutely destroyed. Uh, Yes, there is an ice sculpture contest at the school, and her jock boyfriend that the Mean Girls also want uh, encourages her to enter, but then the Mean Girls break her ice sculpture and she gets so mad that she melts all of them. Do schools actually have ice sculpture contests? Is this a thing? Doesn't that mean giving teenagers chainsaws? Uh, Or at least chisels. I don't think you necessarily need a chainsaw. No, I'm pretty sure you need a chainsaw. Well, anyway, Emma Frost of the Massachusetts Academy, and we've, you know, we've seen her before at this point in continuity. She has her own team that are the equivalent of the New Mutants, who are called the Hellions, She's going after Angelica, so is Xavier, and they're getting closer to finding her every time she uses her powers. Can I read Emma's line here? Because it is so great. I shall personally collect the poor thing. She must be terrified. Well, she'll get used to it. If I have my way, terror will soon become a way of life for her. 
the series is really typified by Emma Frost having her thought bubbles portray her as just the most evil person ever. This Emma Frost is just horrible. This actually was my definitive Emma Frost. I mean, like I said, Firestar was something I read a lot when I was a kid, and Emma wasn't really a major character until much later in the X-Men. When she joined up, like, around Grant Morrison's run, I was really weirded out because I remembered the Emma Frost that just had ruined Angelica Jones' almost entire life. Do you pretty much skip Generation X, right? Because she was running the school during that time. She wasn't, you know, officially X-Men, but she was she was part of the Xavier Institute for a very, very long time before Morrison's run. She was, yeah. And so I guess, I guess there was that, that's true. But even that, she was this very gray character that was in the wake of the Hellions, her former students all dying. So it wasn't her as, you know, a straight-up heroic member of the team the same way it was later. Yeah, I feel like the death of the Hellions is really, really a turning point for not only the character, but the portrayal of the character. Because up until then, she's pretty much an unambiguous villain, and that's where we start to see her written as sympathetic. And that's also where we start to see Emma Frost as someone whose identity is largely built around being a teacher and caring about her students coming into the fore, because God, is that ever not the case in Firestar? Mm-hmm. So there was this ice sculpture contest, and that's actually the same day when Angelica melts all the ice sculptures that her grandmother dies. So after this, she's very distraught. And soon after that is when Emma Frost shows up and talks to her father, saying, hey, this kid's a mutant. And her father's really freaked out. I mean, at this point in X-Men continuity, mutants were very, very much hated and feared. We talked about some of that last episode. And her father is is extremely freaked out, so he's happy to give her to somebody who says that she can help her, that she can take care of her. Well, and Emma, even at this point, is playing up how dangerous Angelica's powers are. Which, to be fair, they are very dangerous. This is the power set that, you know, literally gives her cancer. She can manipulate microwave radiation. She can very easily kill if she doesn't have control over it. Emma is making a really big deal about her powers being dangerous and out of control. And that's something we're going to see throughout this series. And it's part of how Emma manipulates her over the course of this. So, yeah, Emma takes her in and brings her to the Massachusetts Academy. And her life uh, on the surface is actually pretty idyllic. She's got this bodyguard named Randall, who's a really nice guy. Well, who's also her only friend, and she's kept completely isolated from her peer group. So, you know, degrees of idyllic. It's true. But for her, I mean, she's been isolated for much of her life. So, you know, she's got this mother figure, Emma Frost. She's got her bodyguard, Randall. She has the horse, Butter Rum, that she spends all of her time with. What we see is that basically, like you said, Emma's keeping her isolated from the rest of the Hellions. It becomes clear very quickly she's trying to turn her into the perfect assassin. She's trying to really play up the fear and hatred and uh, dependence on herself, on Emma Frost, with everything she does. In the Massachusetts Academy's equivalent of the Danger Room, which I assume has a different name because all of Emma's stuff has weird different names. So like her cerebro is called what? Mutantivac? Mutivac. Mutivac. I don't know why you would call it that. It sounds like something you would juice vegetables in. It sucks and it cuts. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um... So I assume it has a different name, but she has Angelica fight robots, and the robots are rigged with explosives, which Angelica doesn't know, and she tells Angelica that, oh, no, no, you did that with your powers. Yeah, you mentioned gaslighting earlier, and very, very much. I mean, and that's that's just going to be continual. And really, every move that Emma Frost makes is geared toward pushing Angelica toward being this perfect assassin. One of the interesting things about her relationship to the X-Men is that they're never really set up as her enemies exactly. Like, Emma isn't grooming her to fight them. Uh, she's grooming her to fight someone else, who we'll find out about later. But she still makes a point of making Angelica really paranoid about them. She gives her this bracelet, this thing called a hallucinator, because again, Emma Frost uh, names her technology poorly. It causes her to have, you know, continual nightmares about the X-Men. The result of this is less that Angelica thinks of the X-Men as bad guys she should take out than is that she absolutely does not trust them. And this is uh, made even more the case when there's a school dance at the Massachusetts Academy that Angelica begs Emma Frost to go to, even though she's not really close to the other students there at all. They, they think she's stuck up because she's so worried that she might hurt them that she doesn't spend time with them. 
Emma also invites the new mutants from the Xavier Institute. Who are inexplicably allowed to go, despite the fact that the last time they went to the Massachusetts Academy, they were held hostage for two weeks. To be fair, Colossus and Storm do go as chaperones, but I agree. No, this but does you know what dicey. happened the last time Storm went to the Massachusetts Academy? Emma Frost switched their fucking minds with a ray gun. You would think that these would be learning experiences, wouldn't you? Like that the adults in charge of making decisions at the Xavier School would be like, yeah, this is not a good plan. I agree with what you're saying, but at the same time, I just love, love, love the Hellions as the rival school to the New Mutants, the rival team and the rival school, and so anytime they do that, it makes me happy, so I'm really just going to let that little bit of logic go, just so I can have my black and yellow versus pink and purple. I just really like that the X-Adults make perennially terrible choices. But yeah, during this, Angelica and Cannonball actually really have a connection. They're both shy and awkward, and Roberto pushes Cannonball to go talk to Angelica, and Emma Frost has been manipulating Angelica to go talk to Cannonball. Ball. So yeah, they go off and they talk, and that's well, when... And they, and they dance awkwardly first, too. They do. You talked about this for like 10 minutes this morning. You can't leave this off here. You, you have to understand the extent to which Cannonball and Firestar are Miles' ship. They kind of are. They're both such good kids, you know? They're both so sincere and earnest and awkward. I mean, Cannonball's just a bit of a, a, a hayseed in a brain, and Angelica is very, very shy and inexperienced and naive. And so just seeing them together, like really connecting in a way they've had trouble connecting, you know, just being able to be themselves it's adorable do you think he'd be really impressed by the m on her hand i think he absolutely would be whether or not he was impressed to start with the fact that she cared about it he would be all about sam is the best kid he is and angelica is also a really good kid i mean i feel like we're kind of talking shit about her but one thing i do want to get across about this series is that she is sympathetic the entire time yes she's naive yes she's easily manipulated but she's like her intentions are always so pure she just wants to be friends and do good and treat people right and make people proud man yeah she is trying so hard i gotta say a little bit of what i make fun of is the extent to which she is the classic pedestal protagonist she tries so hard and she always means well and she's always nice and everyone around her is just gratuitously and arbitrarily horrible and <laughs> not cannonball cannonball's great but yeah but that doesn't last because emma frost blows up her horse everyone who is nice to her dies horribly yes. i guess not cannonball but well, that's only brief yeah and actually the reason that her and cannonball's semi-date is interrupted is that the stables start burning down and uh, Firestar goes to check it out, becomes convinced that she was the one that inadvertently did it. Because she got so excited. And then her horse, uh, Butterrum, she takes Butterrum out of there, but Butterrum, in fact, dies. What really happened is that Emma Frost rigged the place to blow up. She even like got all the other horses out of there first. Yeah, and under, then, under the auspices of taking them to a show, but leaving Butterrum because she knew that he was so important to Angelica. Yeah, and then she gives Butterrum a heart attack telepathically, but again tells Angelica it's all her fault. And so then she comes to associate the new mutants, and Cannonball in particular, with death and mistrust. So I should qualify that even though I keep saying it, she doesn't actually blow up Angelica's horse. It's just... I don't know. There's just something really poetic about the phrasing. Blow up a pony, it's true. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this does sound very silly, because why would Angelica fall for that? But this hallucinator thing that she's been wearing on her wrist for years at this point does make her very susceptible to Emma's telepathic manipulation. So I'm going to go ahead and say that I buy it. Yeah, I mean, the hallucinator ups the ante enough to make the rest of the manipulation stick. The fact that no one else cares, I'm going to kind of chalk up to the fact that the only Hellions who notice her are complete dicks. Yeah, empath and roulette specifically. Yeah, who are just the worst people. They have no redeeming qualities. They're just terrible, which again is kind of true of everyone around her with the exception of the now deceased Butterrum and I should say Randall, her bodyguard, who is nice to her and who worries about her and who still tries to avoid pissing off Emma Frost because apparently if you work for Emma Frost and you piss her off, she wipes your mind. Okay, let me jump in here. Why would you work for Emma Frost? 
good benefits. They must be great benefits. I don't know. I don't think Harvey and Janet would have stood for this shit. That's true. That's true. I think they were more working for Sebastian Shaw anyway. Well, they were. They worked at the Massachusetts Academy, but they, I guess they could have been temps or outsourced Hellfire Club temps. Is that a thing? I think so. All right. So we, we found a job for you, uh, Harvey. Um, it's a temporary position. It's a little strange, but I know you've been looking for work for a while. So let me just get you to fill out this paperwork. Yes, I know it says Hellfire at the top. That's just what they call themselves. They uh, think how it's many, cool. How many words per minute can you type again? <laughs> they only use Dvorak keyboards there. Just- <laughs> So after Butter Rum dies, there's sort of a gap in between issues two and three, and I believe this is where Uncanny X-Men 193 takes place. Which means Firestar has a brief and yet traumatic but ultimately positive encounter with the X-Men, determines that they're not her enemies, but, you know, still is just diehard loyal to Emma Frost. And this is also where we find out what Emma's plan for her is, which is that she's going to basically set up Angelica to assassinate Celine, the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club. Right, who is cropped up in the long gap of time between Firestar number two and three. Gotta say, I'm kind of with Emma here. Selena's awful, and she's a pain in the ass to explain. Yeah, in the meantime, Emma's continuing her manipulation of Angelica. She actually, as sort of a gift, sends her home to visit her father, along with Randall, her bodyguard, knowing full well that it's not going to go well. And she gets Randall taken out of the way at the airport and has a bunch of other Hellfire Club people in disguise set something up so it looks like her powers have gone out of control and then start an anti-mutant riot. Again, uh, Emma's just doing her best to beat down Angelica and destroy her self-confidence and make it seem like she's completely dependent on Emma. Firestar era Emma Frost, literally the worst. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I know I said Empath was the worst. Emma has more resources. I think they're about equally bad people. Yeah, she's up there with Mastermind at this yeah, point. I think Empath, given Emma's resources, would be as terrible. It's just that Emma has not only the ill will, but the means to execute it on a pretty grand scale. Um, I should go back and say, by the way, that one thing that Emma does say when she's talking to uh, Sebastian Shaw in this issue is that the whole thing in X-Men 193, while that was her manipulating Thunderbird into attacking the X-Men, it was also a test of Angelica's loyalty. And since Angelica does indeed go back to the Massachusetts Academy after the issue, she feels that this whole training, this whole like grooming of Angelica is actually going very well. So anyway, when she's back at home, and her dad is clearly really scared of her because, you know, she sets people on fire accidentally. If she did it on purpose, that would also be a reason to be afraid of her. But True. he's kind of a jerk about it. He's not a particularly supportive parent. He has not done the reading and looked up the, you know, so your kid's a mutant books and gone to the support groups, which I presume must exist in the Marvel Universe by this point. I would hope so, although given the ridiculously rabid anti-mutant sentiment at this point in the Marvel Universe, maybe not. So after this, uh, Randall's getting more and more suspicious, especially after this whole thing where he's held back while Angelica gets in this big riot attack. And so he goes and does a little research, uh, D&D style. He talks to some people in a tavern while he talks to another Hellfire employee in a bar, same difference, and figures out what's going on, which is, like you said, Rachel, that Angelica is being set up to assassinate the Black Queen in what's probably going to be a suicide mission. Pretty definitely. Yeah. So he goes to warn her and is immediately jumped by Emma's goons who are like, well, you know too much. The next day, Emma Frost tells Angelica, I'm so sorry, but Randall was killed. He was doing some espionage against the Black Queen, and she caught him, and she killed him. Is that before or after Emma Frost sets up an apparent assassination attempt against her? Uh, That's after. She's really pushing this whole Celine thing hard. Like, she's already gotten Angelica dependent on her and protective of her, and so now she introduces the threat that she's intending Angelica to confront. Right, so she actually has one of her minions 
pose as a sniper and nominally look like they're trying to shoot her. So with Randall out of the way, and Celine's supposed intent clearly being to kill Emma, Angelica insists that she's going to go to this big grand ball where Emma has said Celine's going to make her move to protect her mother figure. As Emma's bodyguard. And this would have probably happened and gone off without a hitch, had Randall, who apparently just barely survived being killed, not with his dying breath, <laughs> just found barely Angelica. survived being killed? <laughs> You know, it's X-Men. These things happen. Had he not found Angelica and said, hey, here's what's really going on, and now I shall die on you and get blood all over your dress in a very symbolic act. I feel like the only thing that saves Angelica's father in this miniseries is that he starts out as a jerk. It's true. Because the other ones, okay, so uh, Angelica's grandmother died, Butterrum died, and Randall died. Yeah. I, I really want to see them as sort of like Return of the Jedi-style force ghosts that's just kind of come to her an hour, her hour of need all glowing blue and stuff. But like sometimes it's the wrong one. So she's out on a date and she's like, oh, if you know, if only my grandmother were here to tell me about men's ways. And Butterrum's like, <laughs> or, or just like kicks her head in because horses are terrible. Horses are terrible. Horses uh, are really terrifying, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go off on that tangent. But horses are really scary, we, guys. We could seriously do a whole episode with just Rachel ranting about how much she doesn't like horses. Unicorns are even worse. It wouldn't be relevant to X Men, mind you, but we could. It's relevant to everything. And so at this point, she realizes, wait a minute. Not only have I been played about this whole protecting Emma from Celine thing, but she also totally fucking killed my horse and my only friend. And in fact, she's probably been manipulating me for years at this point. It's been three years since she came to the Massachusetts Academy. I mean, the pieces very quickly fall into place. And so at this point, it's time for a good old-fashioned rampage. She chases Emma Frost through the underground training facility below the Massachusetts Academy. Emma keeps trying to stop her. First, she tries to talk her out of it, saying, you know, hey, everything I've done, I've done for you to protect you against this world that hates mutants. But Angelica is not buying it. She burns through the danger room. She burns through all these defenses. And it is so satisfying. And Emma has has really, really dug her own grave here because she's been training Angelica to be this perfect assassin. And she's specifically been training her to be the perfect antagonist for Celine, who is a telepath, among other things. And so Angelica has hella good anti-psionic defenses that she's been working on for the last few years. And so Emma can't take her down. Like, she has no way to stop her. And so, yeah, Firestar doesn't kill her. It looks like she's going to for a moment, but she just makes it clear that she could. What she does do is blow up the entire underground Hellfire Club facility. The school sitting on top of it, paradoxically, is entirely fine. And I am pretty sure that's not how it works, but sure, Hellfire Club engineering. And so, yeah, with that, Angelica abandons the Massachusetts Academy forever, goes and finds her father, and gets, for now, a happy ending. And there's a great scene where she tells him, you know, Daddy, I realized what it really took to make me realize that I had control over my powers all along was burning down an entire school. And he's like, that's awesome, darling. Let's live happily ever after. And they do. To be fair, she doesn't phrase it exactly that way, but I suppose that is technically the gist but of it. But we know. So that's the Firestar miniseries. It's very clear. It's it's not a subtle series by any means. It's kind of cheesy. But looking at it as kind of a YA story... I think it's great. And I mean, I, to be fair, I'm biased because I grew up seeing Firestar on TV and I grew up reading this miniseries again and again and again. But, you know, I, I don't know. I think even by modern standards, there's a lot of good stuff to be found here. I like that the climax of the story is never about her getting rescued. It's about her claiming agency. So yes, it absolutely is. I mean, gender is not a huge part of the story, but it's certainly, I mean... It's the kind of story that you very specifically see about teenage girls and very rarely about teenage boys. And a lot of the setup, I think, is is very, very much part of that. I mean, you mentioned not really recognizing it when I read it. I mean, the whole really nice girl who everyone else is just inexplicably super mean to, but like the kind of popular boy kind of likes, but everyone else hates her that much more because of that. And she just wants to have friends and be a good person. Like that is that is a really, really classic 
set up in books that are specifically aimed at girls. And to be fair, I hadn't really read many of those. So I guess this was kind of my only real exposure to that trope at the time. Yeah, it works sometimes. It's the Thomas Hardy principle in that there's only so far you can stretch it before it gets deeply silly. I guess actually here's a good counterexample of that would be Harry Potter. Okay, how so? He's this super nice, unassuming, great kid who's destined for greatness, whose family is just inexplicably and bizarrely terrible. It's a good thing Emma Frost wasn't there, though. She would have been way worse. I don't know if she actually would have. <laughs> so that's actually something that interests me. So Firestar is now on the X-Men. After years and years of not being affiliated with them, she's now on the Amazing X-Men team. Slinging around alien babies with Iceman and Spider-Man. Yes, yeah, she is. And I'm wondering, like, it's inevitable that she's going to meet up with Emma Frost again. I mean, Emma is a member of Cyclops' team. Cyclops' team inter- interacts a lot with the school. Well, they have at least once. They were both at the Will reading. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm kind of wondering, is that going to come up? I mean, yes, this was a 1985 miniseries that not a whole lot of people still remember, but given that Emma Frost ruined Angelica's entire adolescence, I kind of feel like seeing some resolution to that now that they're on the same team would be appropriate. Maybe she and Kitty can bond over it. Maybe they can start a group of, like, former Massachusetts Academy students who are really just never going to trust the White Queen again. (laughs) I think they totally could. The acronym would be long and unwieldy. So there you have it, Firestar. I really like this series. I recommend it. It's it's not super, super relevant to modern X-Men, but it certainly was at the time. And um, I say check it out if you'd like. It's fun. It's definitely a good window. If you were a, a reader who came into X-Men later in the, the 90s or the aughts and wonder why people are so mistrustful of the White Queen and so reluctant to accept her as a protagonist, this is a great window into why. Yes, it is. Uh, so with that, we have a couple of questions. All right. Marvelous Mr. M asks on Tumblr, why didn't they bring back Thunderbird and instead created Warpath? Isn't it strange that he has been one of the few heroes that stayed dead all of these years? And I want to qualify quickly before we answer this. This is us theorizing. We don't know the actual answer to this. Yeah, but if I were a Marvel writer and I were uh, asked, are you going to bring Thunderbird back or not? Or are you going to create this you know, younger brother character? I would say, no, leave him dead. Bring in the brother. And for me, I kind of feel like Thunderbird, there, there aren't really a lot of storytelling opportunities left for him. You know, he was designed as the X-Man who was going to be headstrong and get himself killed. If he were still around, he'd be both redundant to Wolverine and not terribly interesting. However, when you bring in his younger brother, James, this character who's all about, you know, finding a balance between wanting vengeance but also wanting to be a good man who's not living in his brother's shadow, there you have some storytelling opportunities. So even though the character for a long time had the exact same costume and still has just about the same powers, you know, you also have that added context that makes him, I think, a whole lot more interesting. So I say, leave Thunderbird dead, keep James Proudstar, currently Warpath alive. They did actually bring Thunderbird back briefly during the Chaos War crossover. I thought he came back during Necrotia too. But yeah, I mean, that was specifically to bring a dead character back. So otherwise, as like the main character, I think they made the right decision. All right, so Mac Booker emailed to ask, Colossus is always described as turning into organic steel. I'm not a metallurgist, but as I understand it, all steel is organic, in the sense of containing carbon. This can't be what they mean, though, because it would be very extremely redundant. Is it ever explained what organic steel means? Mac Booker, you are not wrong. And if you think organic steel is redundant, think about organic diamond that Emma Frost turns into. Like, diamond is literally an allotrope of carbon. As far as I can tell... When the word organic gets applied in those ways in the Marvel Universe, what it actually means is living or attached to something living. It's not being used in the chemical term. That makes me kind of crazy, too. You see it used that way in, in general. You know, there's, there's Gambit who can't charge up organic matter, although he can charge wood. So actually, that's ridiculous. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's basically just shorthand for saying living. So Colossus is made of living steel, so he can, like, bend his arms. Gambit can't charge living creatures because otherwise he could just make people explode. As someone who is a nitpicker and who has very strong feelings about words meaning things, this is something that I, I butt heads with a lot when I'm reading comics. And what I try to keep in mind, which you may find helpful, is something that a, my friend Cal McDonald, who writes and draws a, a comic strip called Sorcery 101, among many other things, um, once out on a panel about world building, which is that when you're writing, you change things that get in the way of the story. Ultimately, that's what's happening. You, you kind of have to take some of the ridiculousness and some of the terms and the fact that people keep on describing mutants as a separate species, the phrase organic diamond, which is basically carbon carbon, and just kind of roll with them and be like, okay, well, you know, that's cool, but we still get to see guys with laser eyes punching each other. All of that being said, we have a couple Patreon supporters to thank who have been with us for a while. Rachel? Easy to rationalize such actions, but truly, Josh and David, do you know what your patronage of this podcast might wreak? Do you? Ah, Wolver Angie. For generations I've plotted and schemed while you and your ancestors went about your lives unaware. I must thank you even so. Without your unwitting support, I would not have been able to slay the X-Men, and soon Apocalypse himself. And I think with that, we are out of time for this week. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Bobby Roberts, the producer of the Geek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out on Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website, which is rachelandmiles.com. You can also check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, companion posts, essays, fan art, and much, much more. So our podcast is completely listener-supported and is made possible by people like Josh and David and Wolverangi uh, and our other Patreon supporters. So guys, thank you all so much. If you'd like to become a supporter, if you're not already, please check out the link at the top of our website. And speaking of that website, a new feature that we've just introduced, thanks to the Patreon supporters, is um, full recaps and reviews of every episode starting from the beginning of the um, amazing animated teen drama X-Men Evolution. Meanwhile, next week on the podcast, we are going to do something that I was desperately hoping we could avoid, which is biting the bullet and uh, discussing, at long last, Secret Wars. Both one and two. So join us then for action figures, exclamation points, and Spider-Man teaching the Beyonder to use a toilet. See you then. 